Uh, I'll read a rather lengthy portion of text, so why don't you go ahead and sit down. Our text is Genesis chapter 6. And I believe you can follow along in your bulletin if you uh, don't have a New King James Bible. Should be the same. Let's hear the word of God. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will not destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth both, or I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, the familiarity of it to us and to our children. And we pray, Lord, that you would not allow that familiarity to obscure truth that you want us to focus on, that you want us to understand. We thank you, Father, for your kindness to us in having this be familiar to us. And we praise now, please have your Holy Spirit lead us, guide us, and open our minds to understand it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This is a three-message series entitled The Foolishness of Faith. And the first message is obviously on Noah and is entitled Noah's Foolish Boat. A few years ago, probably six or seven, I don't know, I'm old, I forget. But uh, I was at work and I was speaking with a, two people one I'd known for many years, and the other was someone I barely know. And the fellow that the other two of us barely knew was talking about a TV show. And 
I said, I've never heard of that show. Is it on cable? He said, yes. I said, yeah, I don't get cable. And he took a step back and he looked at me and he said, a unicorn. <laughs> and then my friend said, I don't have cable either. And he took another step back and he said, another unicorn. And it was funny. This fellow obviously has had cable since birth and so he doesn't know how we can live without it. But what I was thinking to myself, as he was saying, oh my, a unicorn, was, wow, buddy, you have no idea. If you think not having cable makes me a unicorn, you should know what else I believe. <laughs> and of course, I didn't take that opportunity to educate him on what I believed. I think there are appropriate opportunities, and that wasn't one of them. But since God saved me at 19, I've swam against the stream of culture. And uh, what was odd to me at first, and was so for years, was often that culture was even within the church. It didn't seem like many people that I knew, that I met initially, uh, believed as I believed. I, I consumed scripture in those early months of my faith, and I had no reason to disbelieve any of it. It all made sense to me. It's all very miraculous. And yet, uh, I've come to find that we unicorns are a unique lot. And I think I'm in the midst of a whole bunch of unicorns. That's what we love about Dominion. And so while I can't say that every last one of us is a unicorn, I pray that is so. So we are unique on the earth. And let me give you 10 examples of ways in which I believe we unicorns are unique. First. We believe the Bible to be inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Now, just the fact that we believe the Bible makes us pretty unique on earth, but to, that we believe it to be inspired, in, in, uh, inerrant, and infallible makes us very unique, even amongst Christians. We believe God created light on day one. When was the sun and the stars created? Day three. Very illogical. But only for people that foolishly believe that our science is the absolute standards of logic. It's not. God's word is the basis of logic. So we gladly accept God's word that light was created on day, two, day one. So the days of creation, we believe, were literal 24-hour days, including day one, day two, day three, day four. We have no reason to disbelieve that. And they started roughly 6,000 years ago, day one. Boom, there it was, and we've been counting ever since. Four, we believe Adam and Eve existed. They aren't just mythical creatures like the unicorn. Now, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't think the unicorn was real. I don't know of any fossil record, and I, and I have heard. Now, does anybody know that the unicorn existed? I mean, I, I'm, I will not be offended. Okay. The unicorn existed? Okay. So I'll take Phil's word, and I think we all will. <laughs> the unicorn existed. Now I believe in unicorns and dinosaurs, and dragons, and isn't it wonderful? And so uh, we believe, though, that Adam and Eve existed. They weren't just representative types of people. We believe Adam and Eve existed. We believe the serpent deceived Eve and then Adam and plunged mankind into destruction. The evil we now experience was due to such a trivial sin, in our opinion, these days. Number six, we believe God confused the languages of people when they persisted in not spreading out on the earth and instead trying to build a tower to heaven. Seven, we believe Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth as promised and performed many, many miracles, countless miracles. We believe he suffered, was crucified, died, entombed, resurrected the third day. Number nine, we believe the apostles, following in Christ's footsteps, performed many miracles, thus proving that they were following in the footsteps of the prophets and they founded the Christian church. And we believe what we're going to talk about today, that God destroyed the earth with a global flood and that he preserved eight people along with thousands of animals and birds and creeping things. Our beliefs in this regard make us fools in the eyes of the world. So be it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. 
and the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And so we believe that too. We believe it all. So now, let's look at just how foolish Noah was in the eyes of the world to build this boat that he built. I'm going to skip to 2 Peter and read from verses 4 and 6 in chapter 3. So 2 Peter 3, chapter, uh, verses 4 and 6. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This is a scoffer that Peter is quoting. This they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. The world that existed prior to the flood no longer exists. That world perished. The world we live in is not the world Noah lived in. God destroyed Noah's world. God used water, a lot of water, to cleanse the earth. Imagine you're washing dishes the old-fashioned way and you've filled up a sink with water and you submerge what you want to clean in that water. I believe that's analogy to what God did. God flooded the earth with water such that he could cleanse it. Remember what he told Cain, your blood, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. I believe that's partly why God wanted to totally submerge the earth in water. He wanted it cleansed of that blood that the violence had poured out upon it in 1,600 years of sin. God submerged the earth and gave it a good scrubbing. Now, how was Noah's world different from our world? And there are many ways, and let me give you what I consider eight ways that Noah's world differs from our world. And I'll start at Genesis 1. Verse 29, and God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. I don't think it can be definitively shown from scripture, but I believe these people were vegetarians. I believe these animals were vegetarians. Because later, when they get off the ark, God is very clear in instructing Noah and his sons and their wives that they're now free to eat all the animals. And then he didn't have any restrictions, as he later had for the Jews. Anything. They were free to eat any of those animals. So I believe these early uh, dwellers on earth, all animals and mankind, were herbivores. Two, Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So the environmental influence of rain is huge in our world. It did not exist in Noah's world. Totally different climatological cycle that they lived in. As a matter of fact, I would think that their world was very similar to what we're now experiencing, perhaps with more sun. But the last day, it's been like this. Now, my wife hates days like this. I like days like this. I feel that I can be more productive because I'm trapped inside. I don't want to be out in that yuck. And so I can go inside and work like this, work on things. But we love the sun. We all love the sun. It's very helpful. So their climate was very different from ours. I believe the next one is the very first verse of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, and see, that's where I want to stop. That serpent talked, and that's strange. Eve didn't think it was strange. Now she didn't have many conversation partners, right? It was only God walking in the garden periodically and Adam, her husband. And so that this serpent talked may not have been strange to her. We don't know. 
But I'm just pointing out that to her, it may not have seemed strange, not nearly as strange as it is to us. Now, there is another example, though, and I talked about that years ago in a community meditation series where the donkey talked, and Balaam seems okay with that. I don't know why, but we know they don't talk, not normally. So, I think that's a little bit of difference. It's a perceived difference, but still, there's a phrase that says perception is reality. I think for Eve, it was different. It meant her word was different from ours now. Four, Genesis 4.11. And I've puzzled over this, and I know I've asked Phil about this in the past. Cain has killed his brother, and now God's talking to Cain. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. God let him go. And I think, why? Why did he let him go? God doesn't believe that he should be let go. And God knows he's guilty, else he wouldn't have punished him. It would have been wrong of God to punish him if he didn't know for sure, for certain, that he was guilty. But God did not exact blood vengeance upon Cain. That, again, comes later. In Genesis 9, when God pronounces the death penalty to Noah upon all men and all animals that kill men, I don't think the death penalty was in place here at this time. And I don't think it was practiced until after Noah got off the boat. I could be wrong, but I just don't see it from Scripture. And another support for that is Lamech later brags of killing. Remember, Ada and Zillah, I bragged to you that I killed a man, young man for wounding me. I killed a young... He's bragging about killing people with impunity. He doesn't care who hears this. Now, granted, you might hear people in our day doing the same thing, yet the law can catch up to them and hold them accountable for that. I'm not sure it did in Lamech's day. The next one is very weird, 417. And Cain knew his wife. So you have to ask, of course, where did Cain get a wife? And so now we know, it's commonly understood, that Cain's wife was his sister. And that's odd. And so you boys have to wonder whether you have to marry a sister. The Fox boys, they have no worries. <laughs> but yet, it would seem odd to have to marry your sister to have a wife on this earth. And that was obviously practiced here. It was obviously practiced again when Noah got off the ark. Yet, it's not practiced now, it's different. Genesis 4.19, just a couple verses later on, and this is again Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives, Ada and Zillah. This is our first scriptural illustration of polygamy, uh, marriage in which you're marrying two women. And so men began committing polygamy different than our world. Now, we recognize that it has happened in our world, but I believe in that world, in that day, it was probably common throughout, at least for the ungodly line of Cain. A seventh difference, Genesis 5, and this is a biggie. This is probably the one that is most memorable. And this is really the first indication you have of it. Let's read, starting at Genesis 5, 3. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son. Now we think, ooh, 130 years. Man, that was a long time. And he's fathering children. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years. And he had sons and daughters. Now we know this world was different than our own. Not only did he have his son Seth at 130 years old, he lived 800 years beyond that day. That's weird. That's a long time. That's a big difference between our day, their day and our day. So that was the seventh difference. And the last difference I want to point out is in Genesis 5 also, verse 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And we see evidence of this earlier. We see Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the garden. We see Enoch walking with God. Now, what's interesting here, though, is that he was translated. We know the same happened with Elijah as well. And so, yes, you could say that there's some similarity between that world and this, but yet Noah then also walked with God. So walking with God, and I don't believe this is walking with God in a spiritual sense. This is walking with God in a physical and spiritual sense. 
So we live in a different world from that now. Now, if there are some in our world that try to tell you that they're physically walking with God, I would say suspect them. They're trying to influence you most likely in a bad way. Cults get started that way. So that's eight differences. Just, you know, there could be more, and some of these might be weak, but there were significant differences between Noah's day and our day. So now, let's go to the text. Six, Genesis 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. So men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Has anyone here ever attempted to determine what the population of the world may have been at the time of Noah's flood? Nowadays, the world population, barring significant events, you know, like uh, huge wars that kill lots of people and, and flu epidemics and stuff like that, and you know, almost like even with all that, it's just a few percentage points. It's amazing how little that affects things. But our population doubles roughly every 75 years, the population of the world. And so if that were the, the speed at which the Earth's population was doubling in Noah's day from the point of creation all the way up to Noah at the time that he's told to build the ark or the flood comes rather, uh, the population would have been about 10 million people. But I left out a huge factor in that and that is the people that were born in 1875 aren't alive now. And the people that were born in 1875 weren't having children in 2005, 2015. So there's a big difference. Those longer lifespans drastically influenced the algorithm by which you would calculate what the population likely was. We see such a narrow slice through the genealogies of Scripture. All you see is one person, one man, his son, one of his sons, one son, one son, one son. The only time you see multiples are with Adam, with Lamech and his sons that became the craftsman and the, the farmer. And then you have the other uh, sons of Noah. That's it. All the rest are just nameless in history. But the Bible does say that all these patriarchs had other sons and daughters, plural. Adam to Seth through to Noah is 11 generations. Adam through Cain to Lamech, the braggart, is eight generations. All of them were said to have sons and daughters. Josephus in the first century said, Adam and Eve themselves had 56 children, 33 sons and 23 daughters. He also said that Lamech, the braggart, had 77 children through his two wives. Now, we don't know, that's not biblical evidence, but it is some form of historical evidence. Who knows whether it's true or not? But look at the, the numbers I'll give you for the uh, population extrapolation I'm going to calculate. Average pre-flood age of 900 years. That seems reasonable. They were all living that long. Only Lamech died earlier at 777, five years before the flood came. So a generation, as opposed to being like 30 or 35 years like our own, let's say a generation is 75 to 100 years. So in other words, they're not having children until 75 to 100 years, which again is a, a reasonable average given what we read in Scripture. Now, let's say that the average number of children born to each couple was only five to nine children. That's not many at all. Not giving how long they lived, not giving the procreative fecundity of these women. So five to nine is tiny. It could have been much, much more. Even with that though, the estimate of world population would be anywhere between five and 17 billion people living on the earth at the time of Noah's flood. But, the calculations I've seen online, I didn't do that math. I wish I could. I should have asked my son to do it. He's the mathematician. I like math, but I'm not that good at it. But I believe these calculations that I've read online that calculate these numbers don't take into account one very important factor. And God refers to it several times in our text that I read. Violence, violence, violence. 
I believe these people were slaughtering one another wholesale. Which leaves me with a puzzling thought. Why did they leave Noah and his sons alone to build an ark for decades? Why did they do it? I don't know. I have some conjecture, but I won't even bother sharing it. But later, much later in the sermon, I'll reference one of them. So, Lamech, the braggart, was of the same generation of Enoch that walked with God. He was born around the same time as Enoch. That was a thousand years before the flood came. So Lamech the braggart, who brags of his violence and who was committing polygamy, I think is indicative of the fact that this polygamy and violence started that early. And so that's why there had been all this time for mankind to slaughter one another. And that's what was just filling God's nostrils with wrath, with, with this uh, hatred, sorrow, grieving of what he had done. Now the next verse. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. This is controversial. Those of you that have read this and studied this probably know that. Who are these sons of God? So there are two predominant views, and both are very popular in our day. Both are held to by large numbers of people. And the two different views are, first, the sons of God are fallen angels. They're fallen angels that have mated with earthly women, married and mated with earthly women, I'll say. The other is that the sons of God are from the godly line of Seth, as opposed to the ungodly line of Cain. So those are the two prevailing views. Uh, Dr. Henry Morris, some of you probably have the Genesis Flood book. Uh, he popularized, I believe, the fallen angel view in his Genesis Flood commentary. Uh, I don't know any of you buy Dr. Sarfati's book when he was here, the Genesis Commentary 1 to 11. I bought that when he was here for PHF. And I wish I'd started reading it two months ago because now I could have not had to skim read it as much as I have the last two days. But he also holds to that view, and I'm not surprised. The Sons of Seth view, by contrast, has been popular for about 200 years now. This fallen angel view, I don't think, has been as popular that long. I'm not going to get into a lot of the arguments for and against each of these views. I think they both have pretty good views for and against. But I do hold to the Sons of Seth view, and I want to share two reasons why. First, God is obviously upset here by what the Sons of God have done. He says, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit. That's when he chooses to say, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Then when they go on to have children, that's when he announces that the wickedness of man is great on the earth. Why punish mankind as is happening in the flood for something fallen angels are largely responsible for. And then why blame it on men? If anything, you gotta blame it on the women, right? They're the ones that are being seduced by these fallen angels. Now, maybe they're not seduced, but they're married. Maybe it's like these Islamic marriages, though. You're mine, you know, drag her by the hair into your home. So, I don't know, but it just doesn't strike me as right that God would hold us accountable for this level of destruction. And I don't see that addressed, at least, with anybody that I had time to reference that holds to this view, I didn't see them address that, just the justice of it. Second, there is a phrase here. Let me see. Verse four, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. All of the believers in the fallen angel view regard the giants as due to this weird mating of angels and man. Yet, listen to this. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. See, there were giants in the day of David. Goliath was over nine feet tall. That's giant, in my opinion. 
especially if he's able to go out on the field of battle. Nowadays, the people that are giants can barely remain erect. I mean, they're not strong men typically. These seven-foot basketball players are, but the nine-foot people, the physics applied to their body is just enormous. Their knees can't sustain their weight. I, I mean, it's just I feel bad for these types of giants. So, but a Goliath, he's fighting in the field with a sword in his hand. I mean, he was intended to be that big. It wasn't a genetic abnormality from what I could tell. So if the original giants that were destroyed by the flood came through this weird mating, where did they come later? So you have to say they came again after the flood and somehow seduced women again, or Noah's genetic material was corrupted by giants as well. And I don't think scripturally you can support that. It just doesn't seem logical. Uh, Noah was of a very godly line, back to Seth, on to Enoch, on to Lamech and Methuselah. I mean, these were a godly line. It's hard to believe that they would have allowed their line to be corrupted like that. But again, I can't get into it fully, but there are reasons why I believe it's the sons of Seth and not this angelic thing. Verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Another controversy. See, we've got to get through the controversies first before we can really make any traction on everything else. Okay, what does it mean when he says, their days shall be 120 years. Okay, two views again. The first is that man's lifespan will be reduced to be no more than 120 years. The second is that mankind has a clock ticking on them now, counting down from 120 years until the time it goes off at the time of the flood. Now, the 120 years as a maximum age of mankind has a practical appeal to it. The oldest living human being on record in recent times, because of course all these modern people will discount the biblical record, was a woman who just passed away in 1997. Her name was Jeanne Calment. She was French and she had lived for 122 and a half years. That's the only person on record in modern times of ever having lived past 120. The very next person was 119 at death. The next three were 117, the next 10 at 116, and the next 24 at 115, and then 60 plus at 114. And when you go out there, of course this is on Wikipedia, where everybody gets all their information. <laughs> you can also link to the oldest living people now. Can you imagine seeing your name on the oldest living in the Wikipedia page? And they update it via some algorithm, refresh, 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 yes! I made it another day. and Because you see the day clicker, click over, and you've made it. And so now the oldest woman is uh, Susanna Jones. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, and she's 117. And so she gets to see her day clicker. You know, Maybe that's what she does now. I don't know. But, but uh, she's living a long time. She's 117. But so anyway, there is this modern practical appeal to 120 as being the limit of human life because we're now hitting it. But I believe that's to incorporate our modern biases into something that was that long ago. Because how long did Isaac live? Isaac came 11 generations after Noah. He lived to 180. So God was very lax in enforcing this 120-year limit if that was his intention. Plus, it just doesn't make sense, not in the flow of the text. The 120 years makes much more sense that it was the beginning of the clock. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Time is counting down. And God intended by that tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock to count down to where he is going to destroy all life on planet Earth. Nowadays, we can have all these movies. And I remember, I think it was a good one. Most of them are not very good, but I, I liked Deep Impact. Came out in 1998, and you have this asteroid, and it's discovered to be plummeting towards Earth, and the uh, government is aware of it, but they don't want to let everybody know because they're afraid there will be panic in the streets. And some news reporter finds out about Ellie. And there's this, she thinks it's a woman. She thinks it's a mistress of some political bureaucrat. Ellie 
is ELE, extinction level event. And so what these politicians had been talking about is not a mistress, not a woman named Ellie, but an extinction level event that was counting down, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. So see, that's what God had instituted in that 120 years. Now verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Mankind had become entirely corrupt and his long life meant that he could become so refined at e his evil. Gary North, I don't know if many of you have read a lot of Gary North, but I know years ago I was reading like a daily email and Gary North has a great way of making complex things very simple. And he talked about how death, how the brevity of human life is really a huge hindrance to economic productivity because you spend all this time filling our brains with all this wisdom and we develop all these skills and this experience only to die. We're productive for 30, 40 years at most and then boom, you're in the grave. And it is the next generation then that has to do the same thing, the same process repeated over and over again. D doctors having to go through 10, 12, 14 years of school and practice, crazy, crazy. And then they make so much money they retire after only 12 years. I mean, you know, what a gig is that, right? So imagine maturing into adulthood and remaining in that productive phase for 500 years. Now imagine that it's not you, but it's your evil neighbor. And he's devising a million ways to kill you and take your property. It's just, it's just no wonder God limited our age and limited and extinguished the earth of that time. I mean, it was just such a horrible, horrible place. It's what we imagine. It's, that's why the curse of death was a blessing upon the earth. After sin was introduced and God says, unless they take from the tree of life. And so that was a huge blessing to all of mankind for God to boot Adam and Eve out of the garden before they could eat from the tree of life and live forever. Okay, now I need to get going faster. I don't know how much time has passed, but too much. Verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. We talked about Lamech being his father. Methuselah was his grandfather. Now Methuselah, if you're a cynic, you could say Methuselah died in the flood. Because he lived 969 years, he's the longest human being living on record in the Bible, and yet he died in the year of the flood. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's day of death was the year of the flood, except for Noah and his, the eight people in that ark. But that is, like I said, the cynic's view of that. I believe Methuselah's life God used as that countdown ticker. And so Methuselah lived the longest 969 years, boom, Methuselah's dead, get in the boat. That, I can't support that from Scripture at all. Just totally making stuff up now. Okay. Um, Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. When I read that in the King James as a young believer, I'm like, where did he go? I, I was confused. I was really confused. And it took a while for me to dawn on this stupid head that, oh, he didn't die. He went to heaven to be with the Lord. It just seemed so cryptic. Why would God write that cryptically? And he was not, for God took him. Or Moses, I guess, you know, the spirit writing through Moses. But anyway, uh, that's Noah's line. Noah was from a very, very godly line. And so now in verse 14, skip ahead. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. And then he goes on to explain the making of the ark. Now, I had always understood cubit to be 18 inches roughly. You know, boom, boom, roughly 18 inches. And yet, I've learned, and the reason that the ark being built in Kentucky right now is bigger than that, because if it were 18 inches, 
it would be 150 times 3, 450 feet long, right? And so it would be uh, 50 uh, cubits wide or 75 feet wide and then 30 cubits high or 45 feet high. And I had explained years ago to those who had been to my home that my lot is 88 feet wide. My lot is 220 feet deep. So if you take, basically put the end of the boat out in the street and then build Noah's Ark beyond my property, double my property, it would pretty much fill the width and be uh, much higher than the top of my house because my house is probably no more than 30, 32 feet in the air. Well, that's too small. I misled all those people that I explained that analogy to because, see, the boat was really 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 50 feet tall because this is what was called the royal cubit. And the royal cubit was what was used for construction projects, and that's why the boat being built in Kentucky now is going according to the royal cubit, which is not 18 inches. It's 20.9 inches, so it's almost 21 inches. So that's much bigger. 2.2 million cubic feet of volume in the ark, 100,000 square feet of floor space in the ark, given the three levels, and it's going to open this summer. Go to Kentucky, buy your tickets now. They cost 40 bucks per family. And they're paying me for that. No. Some of you I know are very strong supporters of that. Me too. I love it. I haven't been financially supporting them. Somehow I fell off their mailing list probably long ago. But, uh, but anyway, I know some of you are planning to go this summer. Who's planning to go to the ARC exhibit this summer? Are you planning to go? No? No? Got, got one? I feel like an auctioneer. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. So we've got some interest in that. I think it's going to be phenomenal. I can't wait to go. I'm not going to go this summer, by the way. We've got other plans this summer. Okay. Now, we, come, we finally come to the heart of this message. I know I've been kind of going round and round today, but the message is what? Foolishness, the foolishness of faith, Noah's foolish boat. God promised in verse 17, and behold, I myself am bringing flood waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So now let's forward to the fulfillment in chapter 7. Let me start at verse 10. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. So the fountains of the deep were broken up, the windows of heaven were opened, the waters prevailed, as verse 19 says, the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits, more than 20 feet, upward, and the mountains were covered. All flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things and bird of the air, they were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. So however many millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people lived at that time, died. They all died except those eight people on the ark and all of the animals as well. The earth would have been covered with animals. I need to present an aside that is a little complicated, and so I want you to track with me, though. I think it's very important. First Peter. If you go to First Peter... Chapter 3, I need to read a portion of this. Peter loved Noah. Peter commented on Noah a few times. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. This I have to read again, and I'll read it again and again. We have to understand this. 
Christ suffered once for the sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit. By whom? So now, by whom? He's referring to the Spirit. It's through the, through the Spirit that Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, who are these spirits in prison? They formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. This is extraordinary. How does Peter know this? Christ preached to the people of Noah's day. Now, this is the verse that is the basis of the Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory because Christ is preaching from their perspective to people that were damned and killed in Noah's flood and he's preaching to them while they're imprisoned in the afterlife. That's what Roman Catholics teach and it's wrong. But Peter could have phrased it better. It's very dense logic here. It's very dense reading. I have to read it to you again, and I'll start at verse 19. By whom, by the, by the Spirit, Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. By the Spirit, Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. It sure sounds like Jesus is preaching to spirits while they're imprisoned, but I don't believe that's the case. Let me share with you what I think it is. Let me insert a word. It will change the meaning, and I believe the word is implied. In verse 19, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits now in prison. I believe Peter is referring back to a time when the power of Christ was at work through Noah preaching to the people of his day. Those same people who rejected the message of truth are now imprisoned and Peter's referring to them being imprisoned. That's not, however, when Christ preached to them. He preached to them in that time, while they were formerly disobedient in the flesh, witnessing the building of the ark. It's a lot to absorb in a couple minutes, but I really urge you to meditate on that text, study it, understand it. Now, what's interesting to me is this. Catholics use this for the basis of purgatory. And earlier, Pastor Kaiser spoke of how Roman Catholics regard Christ as being sacrificed again and again. But look at the start of verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. It's just phenomenal to me that the Roman Catholics can be so obsessed with purgatory over one very obscure reading of this verse and ignore the obvious right at the start of the passage. They're just so twisted and they're so resistant to reasoning from the word. Once you start imputing meaning to the word of God that isn't there, that is based in your traditions, there is no end to it. I jest, I jest about imputing the meaning of Methuselah's death at 969, but that's, I want you to know that I'm jesting. I want you to know it's not there. I'm not definitively saying this is the truth. Why? Because it's not in the Bible. I believe it is a logical inference, rational inference, but it's not there, and so I'm not going to build doctrines around it, nor should anybody, Roman Catholics included. Now, I have another New Testament reference, and this will get us back on track to our main point. I had to do that as an aside. Hebrews 11. Everybody, this should be on your favorites list. Hebrews 11 should be on your favorites list. <coughs> Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Let me reread this and ask you then for an emphasis. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Noah was divinely warned of things not yet seen. What was it that he had not yet seen? What was he warned about? What had he never seen? Now, it's easy to say the flood. 
No one had ever seen a worldwide global flood that spread 20 cubits above the highest mountain peaks. No one had ever seen that. No one ever will again, God says. But yet Noah, through faith, was told of something. Do you know what it was? I'm not saying it's the flood. It's rain. Noah's being told to accept on faith that water is going to pour from the sky in such torrents that it will flood the earth that you live on. And for 1,656 years, it had never rained at all. Only a mist would fall down from the sky and dampen the ground and cause the plants to grow. Now, man might irrigate. Where did the rivers come from? Where is the source of the rivers in creation? The rivers came up from the earth. See, nowadays, our rivers flow down from mountains, typically. We have bubbling springs that bubble up from the earth, but that's not nearly as common. Rivers flow up to down. But in Noah's day, the rivers that are mentioned in the Garden of Eden bubbled up from the earth, the torrents of the great deep. And so when God opened those torrents of the great deep, the water came from below, it came from above, it covered the earth. So see, let me read verse 7 again. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the, righteous, heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. That reminds us of Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's the essence of faith. What Noah exercised was the essence of faith, and it's defined right there in verse 1. In the eyes of the world that then was, Noah was a fool to build that big boat, to survive floods that the world had never seen in 1,656 years. In the eyes of the world that now is, we are fools to believe that that occurred. But in the eyes of God, we are, like Noah, recorded in the Hall of Fame of Faith. We are heroes of the faith, following in Noah's footsteps. Heroism is not a hallmark of the faint of heart. If you want to be a hero, you have to be courageous. Heroism requires courage, it requires fortitude, and it requires the foolishness of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Noah. We thank you for his experience on this earth. It is horrendous to reflect on the great violence that filled the earth of his day. And we thank you, Lord, that you protected him from it. We know that you were there by your spirit, Christ bringing the words through Noah to a lost generation, a lost people, and you brought about that extinction of all the earth's population except for those eight people that you preserved. We thank you, Lord, for your word of truth, uh, extraordinary words, and we pray. Uh, grant us belief, grant us faith, grant us courage, grant us fortitude. In Christ's name and for the sake of his kingdom, we pray. Amen.